we weren't looking for scientific evidence. We were just kind of looking for what we called a napkin analysis. You know, what off the top of our heads could we find? And amazingly enough, it wasn't hard to find a direct connection of all 55 NCFs into a space-based asset. And that was, that was kind of an eye-opener for all of us. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey, Downlink listeners. This episode is about infrastructure, a subject no doubt that you've been probably hearing a whole lot about these past few days, especially if you're in the United States. And that's because U.S. Congress is getting set to vote on two multi-trillion dollar bills. The success of that feat depends on whether the lawmakers can actually reach an agreement. Now, the lion's share of that two-part spending package is targeted at infrastructure. One of the bills is even called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. What's kind of funny, though, is that there is another infrastructure debate going on in this town, and it's about space infrastructure. That's both the assets on orbit and on the ground. The question is, should space infrastructure be considered the 17th critical infrastructure sector? You see, One of the many important jobs the Department of Homeland Security does is coordinate the efforts of public and private stakeholders to strengthen and make resilient the nation's designated critical infrastructure. You know them, like the food and agriculture sector, or the manufacturing sector, the financial sector, etc. There are 16 in all, but space is not on that list. So you've got to wonder, is space infrastructure actually critical? And to answer that question, I spoke with Ron Keane. He's a cybersecurity expert working in the Department of Homeland Security's National Risk Management Center. But before we hear from him, it needs to be clear that Ron did not express an opinion on the current policy. Here's Ron. I'm a senior advisor in the National Risk Management Center. I advise on issues of energy and space concentrate right now mainly on space, but I do advise leadership on issues of energy, frequently advise on on issues surrounding cybersecurity, uh, infrastructure security. You said that there was a calculation that was made on the back of a napkin. I'd love to know, how did that come about? And actually, what did you find? We were sitting around one day, and the discussion had come up uh, in the National Risk Management Center Because we look at the 16 critical infrastructure sectors, the question had come up discussing whether space should be a critical infrastructure sector. And one person asked, well, you know, how many of the national critical functions really do rely on space? The general consensus at the table was, well, probably maybe a dozen or more. We could rattle off probably 12 right off the top of our heads. But there was not a a true understanding or a real sense of how significant space was or how, how much there was a dependency on it. At that point in time, uh, we discussed, after we discussed it, the, the decision was made, well, you know, take a few hours. I was asked to take a few hours and kind of dive into it a little bit and see just exactly what I could come up with a number. Was it you know, a dozen or was it maybe 20? Again, nobody anticipated it being a significant amount, but the, the, there was a curiosity. 
what we did was is I sat down and I took a look at each of the national critical functions and then I tied them into one of the space asset functions and that would be like communications, imagery, sensors, weather, PNT, GPS, those sorts of things. And if I had a hard dependency, something I could absolutely point to, then I checked the box. And if I couldn't, then that, that particular NCF had no hard dependency on space. In other words, we weren't looking for scientific evidence. We were just kind of looking for what we called a napkin analysis. You know, what off the top of our heads could we find? And amazingly enough, it wasn't hard to find a direct connection of all 55 NCFs into a space-based asset. And that was, that was kind of an eye-opener for all of us. Can you describe really how deep it goes? Space is one of those things that you kind of take it for granted. It's not like a truck that you see or a boat that you see or a train or a manufacturing process. It's not something that's staring you in the face all the time. Space is, uh, in some folks' minds, it's very nebulous. It's that thing that's above us. We don't see it. We don't see the satellites. We don't see the the communication links. We don't see the the direct dependency. We don't see the fact that some of those dependencies are not generated from a terrestrial source. They're actually generated from the space-based asset itself. For example, imagery, uh, sensor systems. They generate the data in space and transmit it down to a terrestrial station or terrestrial point. GPS is another one. It transmits the data down and we simply receive it and then match it against three or four satellites to get a triangulation of knowing where our position is and in terms of height and distance and everything else. And so it began to kind of amaze us as we kind of looked at it and realized that that dependency was real, that other than energy, uh, all 55 national critical functions have a dependency on energy. They all have a dependency on communications in one form or another. This was another area they had a dependency on, and it applied to all 55 national critical functions in all 16 sectors. I think that was, that, I think that was surprising. I'm going to take you on to um, another subject. What does an adversary think about? What is the pathway, and, and why is that the pathway an adversary chooses? An adversary is an adversary because they have the intention of doing something to interfere with something that the U.S. is doing, be that a defense initiative, be that an economic initiative, be that some sort of an operation, something. In, in other words, they want to impact the U.S. or the U.S.'s operations in one form or another. A good adversary is going to take a look not just at the target they want to interfere with, but they're going to take a look at any angle that they can possibly use to interfere with that target. Uh, say, um, uh, a truck transporting supplies, they may look at interfering with the truck itself, they may look at interfering with the roadway, bridges that go across, they may look at interfering with a whole variety of things that can somehow impact the operation of that vehicle. With regards to space, you not only have a, what I would call a direct interference with either the terrestrial station or the space-based asset, they can also look at what we call ancillary systems. And those would be your, your 
heating and cooling air conditioning systems, your energy systems. They can look at interfering with data systems. If the space-based system is highly reliant on data being transmitted up or down, they can look at that. They can look at things like antenna control units. They can look at a whole variety of systems and devices that enable us to conduct space operations using space-based assets. Any of those systems may or may not serve the purpose of being able to accomplish whatever their mission is. And so when we take a look at those, not we as DHS, but when we as the United States, we as a public company, we as a private company, we as an individual take a look at that, being aware of the ancillary systems that support the asset, being able to take a look at all of those ancillary systems and being able to at least be aware of where the vulnerabilities are, allows you to be able to kind of prepare for the contingencies. It doesn't do you any good to have an absolutely secure system and you are just rock solid behind castle walls if the HVAC system you depend on to allow your equipment to run isn't protected as well. And if they can get into the HVAC and they can shut it down and then you have a, a period of time that you ha- you can operate before you have to shut down because of heat issues, then they have accomplished their mission. So from the adversary's point of view, the more they look at attack vectors that can impact you, the better it is for them to be able to have options. The vast majority of uh, the infrastructure here in the United States is owned by the private sector. So, I mean, how much should we actually expect from the private sector to actually protect infrastructure such as, uh, you know, satellites from nefarious state actors? Well, if you own infrastructure, you have an obligation to do what you can to protect your infrastructure, not because you're protecting it from the adversary, but because you have a financial, I don't want to say obligation, but uh, you rely on it. It, it. The infrastructure is what is your bread and butter, if you will. But let's be honest. If you're a private company and you are protecting your assets against a nation state adversary, the odds are stacked against you. No matter how secure you are, no matter what you do, uh, the state adversary, the, the, the nation state, has the resources, the time, the energy, and, and probably uh, a plan in place. Eventually, they will wear you down. Eventually, they'll find uh, the chink in the armor. Eventually, they'll find the gap that, that you missed. And it, 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 that's, just, it's, that's not a criticism. That's just simply a fact. A private company against a nation state is not an even match. The private sector cannot do this alone. By the same token, the government cannot do this alone. We manage a very small portion of the infrastructure. The private sector has 80, 90% of the infrastructure uh, owned by them. But at the same time, the private sector uh, relies on the government sector to, or the public sector to provide uh, some of the protections and other things. We have to do it together. This has to be a collaborative and a cooperative arrangement where we're both taking a look at it, where we're both working together, and where we're both focused with the same goal in mind, which is to protect the infrastructure from the adversarial attack. So it's pretty clear that space plays a critical role in supporting each of the 16 national critical infrastructure sectors and the 55 national critical functions. And just in case it's not clear, a critical function is something like supplying water or providing electricity to defending the nation from physical and cyber attacks. And it's because of that 
there is growing support to designate space as a national critical infrastructure sector. There is even a bipartisan draft bill that, if passed, would instruct the administration to make it so. It was a topic at this week's Aspen Security Forum, which is where I sat down with Sam Visner and John Doyen. Sam, together with John's Intelligence Community Association, just published a white paper arguing for a change in space's current non-designation status. Here's what they told me. I'm Sam Visner. I'm a tech fellow at MITRE, which means I lead, uh, I do some of our thought leadership in a variety of areas, cybersecurity, 6G, etc. And I'm also a board member of the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center. And John, what about you? Thank you, Laura. My name's John Doyen. I'm the Executive Vice President with the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. We're a nonpartisan, nonprofit trade association here in the D.C. area, and we work to advance collaborative public-private approaches to intelligence and national security priorities. Thank you both so much for joining me today here at the Aspen Security Forum. It's been a great conference, and no less so because you, Sam, you spoke at the forum on day one, no less, and on space as critical infrastructure. You know, why did the Aspen Institute choose space infrastructure when they could have, you know, addressed so many other different security challenges? Well, without trying to second-guess our friends here at Aspen, um, I will uh, will hazard a guess, and that is that all infrastructures are going undergoing a change, but no infrastructure is, is undergoing a change that is perhaps as dramatic as what's happening in space. Let me quote a famous uh, capitalist philosopher named Karl Marx, who is reputed to have said, quantity has a quality all its own. If we take a look at space infrastructure, we now have what? something like 4,000 satellites. Uh, there is one company, uh, SpaceX, that's talking about a constellation of as many as 40,000 satellites alone, and they're not the only ones building hyperscale infrastructures. So between constellations of tens of thousands of satellites connected to global cloud infrastructures, collected to billions of Internet of Things or IoT devices, the new hyperscaler infrastructures are going to emerge around the world, and that has already started. So this infrastructure, space, on which I would say depends almost every other infrastructure and national critical function, is changing before our eyes at an unprecedented rate. So I think that's uh, perhaps the reason that Aspen chose to deal with this issue at this time. So let's first start with the news. You, along with the Intelligence National Security Alliance, published a white paper titled Designating the U.S. Space Sector as Critical Infrastructure. Sam, you're a key author. What is the paper about, and who needs to read it? First, I think the paper needs to be read by decision makers and key senior policymakers who are charged with answering every day the key question of, what are the national security, economic security, economic competitiveness, global security, global commitment interests of the United States in space, and what are we going to do about it? Those people are among the most senior people in our government, in Congress, in the White House. Those are the people, I think, who need to read the paper. And the paper itself really calls for treating space and this emerging space environment 
on which our national and economic security now depend and will depend more so in the future every day as something that is critical. The security, the resilience of this infrastructure needs to be taken not only seriously, which I think it more or less is now, but things need to be done that reflect how seriously we take it. Perhaps more standards, better public-private partnerships, more accountability, stronger engineering, um, but a stronger sense that this is a vital national and economic security interest of the United States. That's why the paper now, and that's the audience to whom it's intended. And John, why did your organization publish the paper now? I mean, what's the issue for the intelligence community? What's the importance? Well, our alliance, uh, one of our core initiatives is to help provide thought leadership uh, through the community. We have a number of policy councils that do that. One of those councils is our cyber council. And the cyber council decided that this was a key issue uh, to address Uh, to help educate and inform, which is one of the things that I think the paper does really well, uh, educate and inform people on the critical issues at hand regarding space infrastructure and the way ahead as we see it that will help to really promote the public-private partnership here and government-industry collaboration on this issue. But if I can just follow up for a second, I mean, why is this also important to the intelligence community? The intelligence community has a tremendous uh, reliance on space uh, for its mission set. And uh, as you look across uh, all of the aspects of intelligence, whether it's um, uh, communications relay, collection of intelligence from space, uh, and understanding what our adversaries are doing in space, and the overall security posture, um, all of those things make space a truly critical Uh, aspect of national security, and we need to know from an intelligence viewpoint uh, what's going on there, and we also rely on space uh, to help us do our our mission. You know, I, I try my best to prepare for my interviews, and something in the history of the designation of what is and isn't designated as critical infrastructure really stopped me cold when I looked back to 1998. You know, in just three days before the Clinton administration set a national goal to protect the nation's critical infrastructure, the Galaxy 4 satellite failed. You know, and that failure stopped radio broadcasts. It prevented hospitals from paging doctors. It affected police and fire services. You know, it would just seem so logical that space infrastructure would be designated critical to security and to the economy. And yet here we are in our fourth administration, 23 years later. Sam, what's the roadblock and what kind of attention do sectors designated critical infrastructure get? I mean, I've seen the term critical infrastructure inside the trillion dollar infrastructure investments and jobs act, but I don't really get why space isn't like part of that that basket. Thank you, Laura. That's a good, tough question. You know, I can't delve into the minds of everybody who's been a decision maker here, but I can give you an observation, and that is, until relatively recently, most space systems were either government space systems or owned by a few major commercial operators. That's not the same situation that we face in other aspects of the nation's infrastructure. Our agricultural infrastructure is highly distributed. Our energy, our transportation infrastructures. 
highly distributed. Um, all of our other infrastructures are highly distributed. Space was not. Now it is. Now we have thousands of companies manufacturing components of space systems. We have companies around the United States and in some partner countries that are like New Zealand that are putting together launch facilities. We have companies that don't necessarily do that much government work, essentially putting together business cases for commercial uh, satellite systems for imagery, for Earth observation, for meteorology, for communications, and for whole entirely new kinds of information technology infrastructure. That wasn't true in 1998, but now we have this more distributed, far more diverse kind of an infrastructure called space systems, which has thousands of suppliers and hundreds of companies. If one looks at the membership of the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center, that membership ranges from very large companies and big systems integrators to smaller, more emerging players to companies that do imagery from space that rivals what the government might have had. And I want to go back to a point that, that John made about the criticality of this for national security. If one takes a look at the kind of space sensing that is available in imagery, I think we're going to see increasing reliance on commercial space imagery and commercial space sensing uh, services by the national security and intelligence community because it is so good and it is so available and it's something that would be so very useful. So I think the, the change is that there's been a very quick, over the last few years, change in the diversity of the industry and the diversity of the missions that it's undertaking. And what we're seeing now is only the beginning. We're going to see manufacturing in space. We're going to see mining in space, travel in space, more exploration in space. We're going to go well beyond the current missions that we have now. So we have also recognized that our country's status as a great power depends in large part on our prowess and leadership in space which is under challenge. Other countries are interested in this. They see this as an advantage they can gain for themselves or if they can undermine us, a vulnerability in, 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 in our own national and economic security. Um, this wasn't necessarily true 20 years ago, but it's become true now. It's both a huge challenge and potentially a huge vulnerability for us. So I think this has catalyzed thinking about the criticality of space systems. So John, what does this mean for the intelligence community? Can this affect the intelligence budgets as well as security in the sense that if, if space-based assets are designated as critical infrastructure, how does, how does that help your mission? How does it help the intelligence community's mission if it were to be designated as such? Thanks, Laura. And I'd like to go back to something that Sam just said, which is talking about the... Uh, extent of commercial satellites, especially commercial imagery satellites. And the director of the National Geospatial Imagery Agency, Admiral Sharp, recently announced that they have a new strategy, which is to rely on commercial imagery first before we look to other national technical means. So this is another example of where the government is working with industry and with the commercial uh, sector and when you look at how the design is for how we work to protect our critical infrastructure, it really is working with the, the stakeholders and the companies uh, across any of the sectors. 
And so um, by designating space as critical infrastructure, that will give you, you know, additional um, uh, benefits uh, across the board, including all of our commercial uh, space companies that are providing these key intelligence uh, services to the United States. What happens if this status quo, this non-designation, continues? Well, I'd look at this as more a question of how efficient and effective you can be. Um, without this designation, we would have the status quo. There are still um, other ways to protect uh, our critical infrastructure. But if you want to get the full extent of you know, understanding roles and responsibilities of different government agencies, if something were to happen to space infrastructure or to uh, get the biggest uh, uh, benefit you can from the public-private partnership between government and industry and information sharing and data sharing on potential threats to our space uh, critical infrastructure. I think those are the benefits that you know we will have with this designation that otherwise um, uh, we'd still get along, but, but we wouldn't have those. And Sam, for the last word, what do you think? I mean, if the status quo continues, if we don't get this designation changed, what does that really mean? The designation of space systems as critical infrastructure is only one tool, and I don't know what's going to happen. I think there are a range of possibilities for all critical infrastructure designations. The National Defense Authorization Act of 2021 requires a review of the critical infrastructure sectors that were uh, that were identified in Presidential Policy Directive 21, if I if I remember correctly, and I think there's a range of views underway as to how that might be done, but Laura, there won't be status quo, whether or not a critical infrastructure sector designation is made for space or space is considered to be a specially important sector, uh, which is a term one is beginning to hear. I think people are going to take it more seriously, and they have to. But we may be missing some opportunities. For example, this country is very good at building national research and development strategies that involve the public sector, the private sector, academia, and others. We did it with nuclear energy and achieved dominance in that field for many years. Aerospace technology, dominance in that field for many years. By convening, by, by the government taking leadership, convening a national community, helping build a national agenda of key challenges that would have to be met, making resources and assigning responsibility and accountability for meeting those challenges. That needs to be done with the security and resilience of the nation's space systems. A designation that space is specifically important, that takes into account the full range of missions that space performs, as well as the dependence of almost every one of the national critical functions on space, I think requires us to convene this kind of community to drive a national research and development uh, strategy for space systems and space resilience, to drive a national strategy to, for the development of standards and best practices. Now, the Information Sharing and Analysis Center for Space, uh, we're doing this for information sharing, but we are principally operational. The idea of actually putting in place the infrastructure of standards, the infrastructure of accountability for this, goes beyond what, what an ISAC can do and I think is something where the government should play a leadership role. John, thank you so much for your time. Sam, thank you too. 
Thank you, Laura. So glad I could join you this afternoon. Laura, thank you. It's been a pleasure, and I hope this has been helpful. You've been listening to The Downlink, a defense and aerospace podcast. Before I go, I'd like to thank Vago Maradian, the Defense and Aerospace Reports editor for bringing space into his media family, and Chris Cervello, who is the producer for all of the Def Aero Report podcasts, and who, by the way, also co-anchors the Cavus Ships podcast with Chris Cavus. Now, be sure to check it out. You can subscribe to the Downlink podcast on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, Or you can sign up for the Downlink's weekly newsletter on Substack, which carries the podcast as well. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.